Welcome to this podcast recording of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. I'm Raid Dwake, Professor of Medicine and Director of the Pulmonary Vascular Program at Cleveland Clinic and member of the Documents, Development and Implementation Committee of the American Thoracic Society. Our discussion today will focus on the official ATS practice guideline on the diagnosis, risk stratification, and management of pulmonary hypertension of sickle cell disease. My guest is Dr. Elizabeth Klings, who chaired the ATS committee that developed these guidelines. Dr. Klings is currently an associate professor of medicine at Boston University and an attending physician at Boston Medical Center, where she is the director of the inpatient and education components of the Pulmonary Hypertension Center. She has been studying the endothelial biology, genomics, and proteomics of pulmonary vascular complications of sickle cell disease since 1997. Dr. Klings has a pulmonary hypertension clinic where she currently follows about 50 to 60 sickle cell disease patients with pulmonary complications of the disease. Additionally, she has a clinic in the Boston Medical Center Patkin Sickle Cell Clinic where she is involved in the management of complex sickle cell patients with multisystem disease. Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jared. Uh, Good to be here. I would like to start with what is probably the most controversial topic in this area. As you know, there are people in the pulmonary hypertension community that argue whether pH in sickle cell is a real disease. Also, the classification of the disease was recently moved back from group 1, pulmonary hypertension, to the miscellaneous group 5. Can you please put these issues into perspective as you provide our listeners with a background and overview of pulmonary hypertension and sickle cell disease? Sure, I'm very happy to do that. So pulmonary hypertension and sickle cell has been an area of a lot of controversy over the last 5 to 10 years, and that's probably mirrored the growing base of knowledge that we have about the epidemiology of the disease. If you go back to the early to mid-2000s, what was defined as pulmonary hypertension and sickle cell disease was based um, solely on echocardiography as there were really very limited right heart catheterization data in this population. But over the last five years or so, we really have better refined our definition of the disease. And so first and foremost, Pulmonary hypertension and sickle cell is a real disease. These patients are sick, they have increased mortality, and they have all of the classic symptoms that we see in other patients with pulmonary hypertension, with progressive dyspnea and increased risk for right-sided congestive heart failure, hypoxemia, and mortality. As you correctly stated, the most recent classification of pulmonary hypertension has moved pH and sickle cell disease from group 1 disease to group 5, and this actually is reflective of the fact that these patients have differing hemodynamics. From what we know from um, three relatively large cohort studies of patients with sickle cell disease is that pH, or pulmonary hypertension, affects about 6 to 11% of adults with sickle cell disease, which is much lower than what was originally noted by the echocardiographic definition, but this is still a significant percentage of patients and fairly similar to the prevalence data that we observe in patients with scleroderma and pulmonary hypertension. The move of pH related to sickle cell disease and other hemoglobinopathies to group 5 disease reflects that in approximately 50% of these patients, there is at least some evidence of elevated pulmonary pressures related to left-sided heart disease what's called pulmonary venous hypertension or post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. This is usually seen in conjunction with um, diastolic dysfunction of the left ventricle, 
although from echocardiographic studies done at our institution, we know that there are isolated cases of systolic dysfunction of the left ventricle and left-sided valvular heart disease that occur in these patients as well. That's great. That's very helpful. Can you get a bit more granular and discuss how the disease is defined and how do you make a diagnosis? I think that's a really important question, right? We really focused on the definition of pulmonary hypertension and sickle cell disease because our group became very focused on defining this according to guidelines that were set forth for diagnosing other forms of pulmonary hypertension. And so we are insistent that in order to diagnose pH and sickle cell disease, all patients must undergo a right heart catheterization, as this is the, the gold standard for diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. We define pH of sickle cell disease by the presence of a mean pulmonary arterial pressure of greater than or equal to 25 millimeters of mercury, which is exactly the same as what's seen in other forms of pH. And if you look hemodynamically at these patients, approximately 50% of them will have at least some degree of what I would call pulmonary venous hypertension with an elevated pulmonary capillary wedge pressure or pulmonary artery occlusion pressure of greater than 15 in conjunction with the elevated mean pulmonary artery pressure. About 40 to 50% of the sickle cell patients with pH, however, will have hemodynamics very similar to pulmonary arterial hypertension, and this is why this disease was previously in, classified in group one pulmonary arterial hypertension. And what we define as, as pulmonary arterial hypertension, like chemodynamics in this population, is the presence of a mean pulmonary arterial pressure of greater than 25 in conjunction with a normal pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, less than 15 millimeters of mercury, and an elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. The issue of pulmonary vascular resistance, or PVR, is actually a bit more complicated in sickle cell disease. Can I ask you about that? I guess you use a different uh, guideline than the historic three woods units. And the reason that we decided to alter what's considered an elevated pulmonary vascular resistance in this population is based on hemodynamic data that was, was generated actually in the 1950s and 60s in patients with sickle cell disease, and it correlates with data that, was, that has been obtained today. In patients that do not have pulmonary hypertension but have sickle cell anemia, what you will observe is a markedly elevated cardiac output reflective of the anemia observed in these patients. And the baseline cardiac output in these patients is between 7 to 9 liters per minute, which when that gets put into the calculation for pulmonary vascular resistance, leads to a baseline pulmonary vascular resistance of 60 to 80 dynes per second per centimeter to the negative fifth, or one wood unit. This is approximately half of what the normal PVR in a patient without sickle cell disease would have, where there's typically a normal baseline PVR of between about 120 and 160, or two wood units. We felt quite strongly that a PVR that was greater than two standard deviations above this normal value would be considered to be abnormal in this population. And because of that, we are using a PVR cutoff of greater than 160 dynes per, second, per centimeter to the minus five or two wood units instead of the cutoff of 240 or three wood units that are used in other populations. That's great. So really, uh, the definition is 
standard definition of pulmonary hypertension for pulmonary artery hypertension, which makes it kind of useful and easier to follow. It's not much different than any other form of pulmonary hypertension when we make the diagnosis. That is true. And one of the goals of our guidelines committee was to really try to define this disease in concordance with what has been established in other disease groups for a number of reasons. One is it makes the disease much more understandable from a hemodynamic standpoint. It also really helps to classify these patients appropriately for um, consideration for clinical trials. That's great. Let's focus on the document now moving forward. Uh, Can you tell us what the rationale behind the document and the timing of its publication? It seems like there's a lot of information the last few years and it seems the timing is appropriate. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Actually, the timing has been a little bit fortuitous in terms of when this document is actually coming to publication. I began work on forming this committee to put together this document actually back in 2008, so about five years ago. And the reason for seeking the American Thoracic Society's support for a document such as this is really to try to clarify the field. Back in 2008, I felt that this field was being in some ways marred by the echocardiographic definitions of pulmonary hypertension and the concern amongst pulmonary hypertension physicians not involved in the care of patients with sickle cell disease that this was not a disease that was similar to other forms of pulmonary hypertension. And I really thought that we needed to gain some clarity in the field and review the literature critically to try to put together the best clinical guidelines document possible to try to offer the best treatment options and diagnostic options for these patients because it was becoming more and more clear to me that patients were getting underdiagnosed for pulmonary hypertension and they were not receiving the appropriate um, diagnostic workup and potentially treatment for their condition. So back in 2008, I asked Drs. Mark Gladwin and Roberto Machado to help me put together a committee of adult and pediatric hematologists, pulmonologists, and cardiologists to um, appraise the literature on this subject and really try to define pulmonary hypertension and sickle cell as best as possible and lay out both a strategy for diagnosis as well as treatment of these patients. That's wonderful. So it's important to get uh, definitely key uh, thought leaders in the area and, you know, different stakeholders from different aspects because this is a multidisciplinary disease, obviously, and you want people involved from the different uh, disciplines. So how does that translate into the target audience, for example? Who is the target of this guideline in your mind since sickle cell disease is a multidisciplinary disease and pulmonary hypertension on top of that is also multidisciplinary? Exactly. And we've been very focused from the outset of really including the hematologists who are often the uh, primary care providers for these patients involved in the document creation as well as dissemination of the information involved in the document. Clearly, this document is being supported by the American Thoracic Society. And if you look at the contents of our committee, the largest components of our committee are adult pulmonologists and cardiologists involved in the care of patients with pulmonary hypertension. So the answer to your question is actually a little bit more complex. I think that there are many more pulmonologists and cardiologists who are interested in pulmonary vascular disease that need to be involved in the care of patients with sickle cell disease. So I would say that that would be our primary target audience for this document. But I also think that physicians, both primary care physicians, 
and pediatricians as well as hematologists need to be aware of what we are putting forth in the guidelines because in order for them to make the appropriate referrals to um, their pulmonary and cardiology colleagues, they really need to be actively assessing their patients for the presence of pulmonary hypertension and other pulmonary vascular complications. Dyspnea is incredibly common in the, in the sickle cell population, particularly in the adults. And from questionnaire data that we did at, at Boston University back in the mid-2000s, we know that about 50% of hemoglobin SS and about 40% of hemoglobin SC adults experience mild to moderate dyspnea on exertion. And these are patients who are often in their 20s and 30s and can't walk more than five blocks without experiencing dyspnea. Um, so this is a very limited population in terms of exercise capacity. And I think because these patients are so complex and have so many other complications of the disease going on, they often ignore their restrictions in exercise capacity until they become extreme. So by reading the document, I noticed that uh, it has really two major components uh, and from the recommendation standpoint, one regarding diagnosis and estimating mortality risk, and the other about uh, therapy recommendations. Maybe you can start with the evaluation and risk classification. What are the key recommendations that came up uh, with the committee for this document? One of the key game changers in, in pulmonary hypertension and sickle cell disease has really surrounded the fact that pulmonary hypertension is a mortality risk factor for sickle cell disease. And this was actually originally identified from Dr. Mark Gladwin's work when he was at the NIH and was using echocardiographic screening for this disease and found that if you had an elevated pulmonary artery systolic pressure or an elevated tricuspid regurgent jet velocity by echocardiography, that in and of itself predicted a 40% 40-month mortality rate, which was shocking in this population of primarily young adults. And because of that, we have not abandoned the use of echocardiography for screening this population because we do believe that this identifies a high-risk population that is at high risk for other cardiopulmonary complications as well as being at high risk for pulmonary hypertension. We are recommending for adults with sickle cell disease that they undergo echocardiographic screening every one to three years because we believe that that will identify um, a higher risk population for death. I think that this really needs to be done in conjunction with a history and physical exam because a, a careful cardiopulmonary-based history will elicit many more symptoms of dyspnea and exercise limitation than patients will present on their own. And we really think that, that this and a careful physical exam is really necessary in these patients on an annual basis. One of the areas of controversy is what to do in terms of the pediatric population. Pediatric studies have shown that about 10 to 20% of children and adolescents with hemoglobin SS disease will also have an elevated pulmonary arterial systolic pressure by echo. And it's not clear what that means in this population. There has never been a clear link between an elevated PA pressure by echo and mortality in the pediatric population. But yet, when these patients are followed longitudinally, we find that they have a reduction in their six-minute walk test if they have an elevation in their PA systolic pressure. So it suggests that echocardiographic screening may identify a higher-risk population within the children and adolescents that may be at increased risk for reductions in exercise capacity down the line. Whether or not this patient group represents a group of patients 
that have a higher propensity for developing pulmonary hypertension is unknown at this time. And this is really an area of marked interest within the sickle cell community. Yeah, I want to pick up on this echo again. I know you mentioned it briefly in the introduction. And uh, in the document, you clearly, and I feel appropriately, state that the diagnosis of pH requires right heart catheterization. I think that really is very helpful and just puts this issue in a way to rest the controversy. You still, however, rely on this tricuspid jet velocity for risk stratification. So how did your committee address kind of the utility and balance between invasive and non-invasive testing for risk stratification? And uh, maybe you can talk about it later, recommendation for therapy. Our committee believes very strongly that an echocardiogram by itself is not sufficient for diagnosis or for initiation of treatment of these patients in terms of using pulmonary hypertension-specific therapies. However, we do believe that non-invasive testing is key to identify who are the appropriate patients in which to pursue a right heart catheterization. As I mentioned earlier, dyspnea is incredibly common in this population, and so you really can't just use um, symptomatology and physical exam to guide who proceeds to right heart catheterization. So there really is a need for um, non-invasive testing. Otherwise, there are going to be many more inappropriate right heart catheterizations in the population than are necessary. We believe that if you have an elevated a pulmonary artery systolic pressure of greater than 40 millimeters, or a TR jet velocity of greater than three meters per second, that this is an indication to proceed to right heart catheterization. This is actually very similar to what I do in my other non-sickle cell patients who get referred to me for an elevated pulmonary pressure on echocardiogram. If their PA systolic is greater than 40, I will take them to right heart cath, particularly if they have symptoms of dyspnea, to confirm the diagnosis of pH. The problem in this population is really what to do with patients that have sort of an intermediate level of PA systolic pressure elevation, meaning a PA TR jet velocity between 2.5 and 2.9 meters per second, or a PA systolic between about 35 millimeters of mercury and 40 millimeters of mercury. We believe strongly that if, if patients have symptoms suggestive of pulmonary hypertension, because of the elevated risk of pH in this disease, that they should proceed to right heart catheterization. In patients that are otherwise asymptomatic and have just an abnormal echocardiogram noted, one of the other things you can do to try to further clarify the elevated TR jet velocity is to do a six-minute walk test and to do an NT probe BMP level. Both of these factors have independently been associated with pH in this population, a reduced six-minute walk distance and an elevated NT pro BMP of greater than 160 picograms per milliliter. But it, the French group found that if you had the combination of an elevated TR jet velocity with a six minute walk distance of less than 333 meters and an NT pro BMP of greater than 160, that this increased the positive predictive value of an elevated TR jet or elevated PA systolic pressure by echocardiography and really helps the clinician to identify who to pursue a right heart catheterization. Yeah, that's a very helpful algorithm. Thank you for uh, providing that. So uh, let's move now to the uh, therapy part of the document. You give a strong recommendation for the use of hydroxyurea for the treatment of these patients. Can you elaborate on the role of hydroxyurea and patient selection for this therapy? 
It may appear a bit strange that in the midst of a pulmonary-focused document that we talk about the use of hydroxyurea, and I want to give a little bit of background for our rationale for including it in the document. Hydroxyurea to date remains the only FDA-approved medication for the treatment of patients with sickle cell disease. Despite this fact, it is incredibly underutilized in this disease, and there are many factors that influence the utility of this medication in this population. Most sickle cell centers report hydroxyurea use, particularly among adults, at a frequency of about 40 to 50%, which is shocking because this is a medication that both reduces the frequency of painful crises and acute chest syndrome, but also has been linked to improved survival in this patient population. Our rationale for including hydroxyurea in this document really stems from the fact that longitudinal studies have demonstrated improved survival in sickle cell patients that use hydroxyurea long-term. These data have been generated as part of the multi-centered of hydroxyurea study of which Dr. Martin Steinberg on our committee was, was one of the principal investigators. The data clearly show that pulmonary hypertension and even an elevated PA systolic pressure by echocardiography are risk factors for mortality in the sickle cell population. So we believe that treatment of PH in sickle cell really needs to go beyond the pulmonary vasculature to also include treatment of the sickle cell disease in general. And because of the data that suggests that increased hemolysis, because of its impact on nitric oxide bioavailability, likely plays a role in disease pathogenesis, we believe that treatment of hemolysis or reduction of hemolysis by medications such as hydroxyurea will be useful in this population. Unfortunately, there have been no clinical trials directly addressing this question in the population, but because of the link between pH and mortality in sickle cell disease and the impact of hydroxyurea on mortality, we felt that it was important to make a strong recommendation for the use of hydroxyurea in this population. That's great. On the flip side, however, I noticed that you recommended against targeted PAH therapy for most patients, especially when it comes to phosphodiesterase inhibitors. Can you expand on that and tell us when we'd recommend such therapy in these patients, if at all? That's a great question. And I think this was one of the most problematic parts of putting together this document. There were two areas that sparked a tremendous amount of controversy, both within our committee as well as within the reviewers of the document. The first concerned the concept of screening for pulmonary hypertension in the population. And the second, and probably more contentious, was the use of PAH-specific therapy in this population. Let me state at the outset that there are patients with sickle cell disease and pulmonary hypertension who not only respond to pulmonary hypertension-specific medications, but have a marked improvement in both symptoms and hemodynamics with these medications. The problem with making a global recommendation for the use of these medications in this patient population stems from the fact that there have been no randomized controlled trials of any PAH-specific medication in this population that has been completed successfully to date. What we have in existence currently are case series of very small numbers of patients upon which to base recommendations. There have been attempts at three different clinical trials of oral PAH medications. The first two were an industry-sponsored trial of both sensitive use 
for either pulmonary arterial or pulmonary venous hypertension related to sickle cell disease. These trials were um, sponsored by Actillium and occurred back in the mid-2000s, and the trials were stopped prematurely because of difficulties with enrollment. And I think there were a lot of factors that led to the early cessation of these trials, but at the conclusion of the trial, when it was stopped early, there were only 26 patients that were enrolled in the clinical trial. And unfortunately, because of randomization, very few of these patients actually had pulmonary arterial hypertension and received postensin. The third trial looked at the use of sildenafil for treatment, and that trial was actually stopped prematurely because of an increase in serious adverse events observed in this population. And most notably, what we observed was an increase in uh, painful crises and hospitalization for painful crises in patients that were receiving sildenafil. At the time that the trial was stopped, there were also questions about efficacy of this medication. Because of the WALK-FAST trial, which examined the use of sildenafil in patients with pulmonary hypertension and sickle cell disease, there really has been a lot of negative press about the use of sildenafil in treating these patients. I want to actually point out that there were several problems with that clinical trial and why sildenafil actually may work for select patients. The first problem was that the WALK-FAST trial used an echocardiographic definition of pH. And because of this, it did not limit therapy to patients with only hemodynamics consistent with pulmonary arterial hypertension. It included patients who may have only had a TR jet velocity of greater than 2.7 meters per second or a PA systolic pressure of about 38 millimeters of mercury. Because of this, this was not a pure PAH population. And what I will say is that in isolated patients, um, sildenafil is actually extremely well tolerated in terms of both improvement of symptoms and hemodynamics. And for example, I have a patient that I've followed now for almost five years on sildenafil for treatment of pulmonary arterial hypertension related to sickle cell disease. When she presented to me, she was a New York Heart Association class three patient, was oxygen requiring, and became dyspneic on walking about one block. Currently, she is off oxygen entirely, is New York Heart Association class one to two by symptoms, and about two weeks ago had a six-minute walk where she walked 427 meters and did not desaturate below 90% on room air. And so there are you know, anecdotal cases of tremendous success with phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors in this population. However, we felt strongly that because of the WALK-FAST trial, we, could, we needed to have a lot of reservations for recommending this treatment for these patients. We believe strongly that for patients who have sickle cell disease and hemodynamics that are consistent with pulmonary arterial hypertension, meaning an elevated mean PA pressure, a normal pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, and an elevated PBR, that these patients do respond to PAH-specific therapies, and that these patients really, if they have symptoms suggestive of PH, they need to be offered these therapies. And I've had tremendous success with the endothelin receptor antagonist in this patient population, inhaled troprostanol, as, as well as with intravenous therapy. 
Many of the sickle cell patients, because of their comorbidities, have a lot of reservation about intravenous and subcutaneous uh, prostacycline therapy. And because of this, I tend to try to use oral therapy as much as possible in this population. And often, we'll use the endothelin receptor antagonist as my medication of choice because of the issue of D-phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors in this population. We have no idea if the newer PAH therapies, including mocitentin and reosteguat, have any impact in this disease. They have not been studied. So like other forms of primary hypertension, patient selection is key, it looks like. You have to select the right therapy for the right patient, depending on their different characteristics. It's not a one-size-fits-all for treatment. Absolutely. And the patients who have pulmonary hypertension related to left-sided heart disease do tremendously well on diuretics and management of diastolic dysfunction. I manage them very similarly how I manage my other diastolic dysfunction-related pulmonary hypertension patients in my clinic. And if you read some of the old sickle cell literature, there's a lot of concern amongst sickle cell hematologists that diuretics may not be well tolerated in this population because of issues of erythrocyte dehydration and the, and the increased propensity to sickling. But I will tell you that if you follow these patients closely, they tolerate and they have elevated pulmonary pressures. They tolerate diuretics extremely well with improvement in symptoms and preservation of renal function and no increased propensity to sickling. Any other key recommendations regarding therapy you want to discuss that we didn't cover? The one thing I will mention that we haven't discussed is the use of chronic transfusions in this population. And this is an area of some controversy within sickle cell, but it's one of the other options that is available for treatment of sickle cell disease. I mean, it's more of a hemoglobinopathy-based treatment. Most of what is known about chronic transfusions is actually in the pediatric population, where chronic transfusion seems to be an effective preventive therapy for the development of strokes in patients who have an elevated velocity on transcranial Doppler. And we don't really know what the impact of chronic transfusions on uh, pulmonary hypertension and sickle cell disease is, although there was a very limited case series back from the late 90s that suggested that there may be some reduction in PA pressures in patients that are chronically transfused. And we are recommending it as a potential therapy for sickle cell disease patients that are not tolerant of hydroxyurea because it actually counteracts the effects of hydroxyurea. So we believe strongly that hydroxyurea should be the first-line therapy for patients with sickle cell disease and particularly pulmonary hypertension related to sickle cell. But if they are not able to tolerate that, that might be a reason to consider a chronic transfusion therapy. So, Liz, what's next? You, know, you spent the last five years, as you mentioned, you know, reading the literature, compiling the evidence, and you summarized it in this wonderful and authoritative document. Uh, where does the field go from here? I think that's a very good question. I think that there are still, even in 2014, so many things that are really unknown about this disease and in terms of disease progression and whether or not intervening on these patients early will reverse um, the endothelial function and maybe provide risk reduction in disease, we need to better link what is going on from a cardiopulmonary standpoint in the children and adolescents with sickle cell, with disease in the adult. This is a disease as a congenital hemoglobinopathy that affects the entire lifespan of patients with sickle cell disease. And I think where this field is moving is really looking at 
pulmonary vascular complications along the continuum of the lifespan. We need to better define the epidemiology of pulmonary hypertension related to sickle cell disease and the importance of disease modifiers such as sleep disordered breathing, venous thromboembolic disease, and we really need to begin to do clinical trials of the pulmonary hypertension-specific medications in patients who have PAH related to sickle cell disease. You know, I think those of us who are involved in the care of these patients know that these patients respond to these medications, but yet we need to study it more carefully in this patient population because these patients have systemic vascular disease. Their disease is not limited to the pulmonary vasculature, and so it cannot just be assumed that these patients are going to respond to traditional PAH therapies. But I think much more needs to be done in terms of both the diagnosis and the treatment of these patients. And I think that the next 10 years are really going to be revolutionary. And if, you, if we look historically at where pH of sickle cell disease has been and where it's come to, before 2000, this disease was largely ignored by even the hematology community. And I think you know, now those of us involved in the care of this, these patients are beginning to appreciate the importance of this complication of sickle cell disease. But I think that the, what I hope these guidelines will actually accomplish is to increase the number of physicians trained in cardiology and pulmonary disease who are interested in sickle cell disease. Thank you very much, Liz. This has been a terrific discussion. I certainly enjoyed it and learned quite a bit. Do you have any closing remarks or key takeaway points you want to provide our listeners? I think that, that one of the key things to keep in mind is that the current document really reflects where this field is at in 2015. I think that our group is anticipating that we will likely need to review and revise this document in the upcoming years, and I you know, would encourage people to get involved with this patient population because although um, it is often a challenging population to work with, these patients have very complex um, vascular disease but also very complex systemic disease that pretty much touches on almost every area of pulmonary biology. Thank you very much. In closing, this is Ryan Dwake from the Cleveland Clinic and the ATS Documents Development and Implementation Committee, and I have been talking with Dr. Elizabeth Klings from Boston University about the official ATS clinical practice guideline on the diagnosis, risk stratification, and management of pulmonary hypertension of sickle cell disease. I hope that you found my interview with Dr. Klings to be a useful update on this topic and that it will help you with the day-to-day -day management of these patients. Finally, on behalf of myself, Dr. Klings and her committee, the Documents Development and Implementation Committee, and the American Thoracic Society, I would like to thank you for listening to this American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine podcast.